0: From the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine
1: the liberal order.
0: Brexit means Brexit, and we are going to make a success of it.
1: The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity,
2: but it will not stay open forever. Hello, you're listening to the CER Brexit Bulletin podcast with me, Beth Oppenheim, and I'm sitting here in our Westminster office today with some of our resident Brexit experts. So we've got Charles Grant, the CER's director, Ian Bond, the foreign policy director, and Sam Lowe, a senior research fellow here. Hello, everyone. Hi. Hi. And we are recording this special Brexit edition of the podcast exactly one week before Brexit Day, the 31st of January 2020. And our conversation today is going to span a number of Brexit related issues from the CER's role after Brexit, the future for UK EU trade and the fate of UK foreign policy. So Charles, if we could just start with you. You open the bulletin issue by asking the very provocative question, who needs the CER? So, can you explain to those who might be a little bit cynical, why is the CER still needed after Brexit?
3: Well, some people have said to us, do we really need the CER after we've left the EU? And the answer is, of course we do, because the CER has two important missions. We've had these missions for more than 20 years, and they still pertain after Brexit. The first mission is to come up with ideas and policies for reforming the EU so that it works better. And the second mission is to improve the quality of Britain's relationship with the EU and both those missions are just as pertinent and relevant post-brexit as pre-brexit.
2: So could you just say a bit more then about those missions what are our missions at the ceo over the coming years?
3: Well, um One thing we try and do is help people to understand what's going on Uh, and it's quite clear that many people in Britain have a rather poor understanding of how the EU works and what motivates it and what drives it and I think we can play a special role in helping people in the UK to appreciate what is happening in the EU and what the EU is likely to do and how the EU is likely to handle the Brexit talks. On the other side of the equation, people in the EU need good intelligence as to what's happening in the UK, they're mystified and baffled by what's going on in Britain and we can Help to do that. Help to help to help to satisfy their their needs. I mean, we perhaps in a, almost a unique position because our head office is in London, but we now have offices also in Brussels and Berlin, and we have our contacts in Brussels, Berlin, Paris, and other capitals further further afield in Europe and beyond. Are second to none. So I think we're pretty well plugged into policymakers on both sides of the channel, and we can help each lot of policymakers to understand what's going on on the other side of the channel.
2: What kind of relationship between Britain and the EU will the CER be pushing for in the coming years?
3: Well, we have to deal with the world as it is, not the world as we would like it to be. And the world as it is means Britain is going to leave the EU. And it's probably a decade or 20 years before anybody's talked seriously about rejoining. So we are where we are. What we want to see is as close a relationship as is compatible with the political realities which exist. So, we would like to see Britain in the, in the customs union in the single market. That's unlikely to happen. So we'll just push for as close an economic relationship as possible. There are many different models of economic relationship which we can discuss and we'll be working on. We'd like it to be closer because we think closer means less damaging to the British economy. On security, I'm a bit more optimistic than trade. I think trade it is going to be rather a hard Brexit, and Sam will talk about that in a minute. But on security, we may not do so badly. Because Britain is such a big contributor to European security on foreign policy, defence, counter-terrorism, policing and so on, that I think many of our partners want to keep us closely plugged in. And there has been a bit of a shift in the last year or two towards saying to the British, well, let's try and devise unique bespoke structures that can allow you to plug into our policymaking without you being a full decision-making member of our machinery that you plug in let you contribute so that we can make it take advantage of what you have to offer and you can of course benefit from being plugged in as well yourselves and that I think is the prevalent line in some member state capitals now and even perhaps in the commission where it wasn't in the past in the past the commission was very right about precedent if you give the British a special plug-in role plugged in role then other third countries will ask for the same thing but I think now people realize that Britain is rather a unique case and just because you give the British a special position in, say, the European defense policy, it doesn't mean you have to offer the same to Moldova or Montenegro. Uh, So I think I'm a little bit more optimistic on the defense and security side. The trouble there is that Britain would have to accept some sort of role for the Court of Justice when it comes to justice and affairs measures. And also I do worry that if the trade talks end in acrimony, and they might do, that will mess up our attempts to build a good security relationship.
2: So of course we write about a number of policy areas that have really nothing to do with Brexit at all, that are much Mm. more focused on the continent. Can you say a bit more about that and our work on Europe more broadly and on European reform and our plans over the coming years on that?
3: Sure, I mean, the lion's share of the CR's work is not actually about Brexit. Not everybody realises that. have we? we published 11 longer papers in 2019 and 10 of them are about things other than Brexit. So um, that, that'll keep us very busy. Uh, one area we work on, of course, is the Eurozone. We believe, like Macron does, the Eurozone needs quite radical reform in order to survive. We'll be working on migration, police cooperation, relations with Russia... China and the US, these difficult partnerships we'll have with these countries, the Middle East and Iran. Um, we'll certainly work on the EU's institutions, what the EU should do to regulate the big tech companies, um, trade policy, which Sam will be working on, amongst other things. So we're going to be very busy with a wide range of subjects. And I think you know, Europe, Europe, Europe always will need reform. The day the day to wind up the CER is when Europe is working so well, it doesn't need reforming at all. But I think it's a long, long way from not needing reforming. So the need for our proposals on EU reform will be still very relevant. I should say that there is a sort of particular approach we take to EU reform which we try and come up with proposals which are practical and viable and respect the political realities and also we put a premium on making sure our proposals are well written and well presented because the more people are likely to to read them and influence them. So we do aim to re- influence policymakers, politicians, officials, journalists and other people, and sometimes the broader public too. I think one of the reasons why there is a demand for our product and uh, on our website and our publications and our social media commentary and so on is because we managed to present our ideas in a fairly uh, a reader-friendly, user-friendly way. And we will, we'll, we'll aim to continue doing that for the next couple of decades at least.
2: Great. Thank you, Charles. Sam, so I'm just going to bring our focus now back to trade and Brexit. What kind of UK-EU trading relationship do you think that we're going to end up with being realistic?
1: I think speaking realistically and taking into account the UK stated objectives, which at this moment in time are to have m- retain maximum flexibility to regulate the domestic economy as Prime Minister Boris Johnson sees fit, and also to be able to strike free trade agreements with whoever he wants to. If we take that into account, then there is only one positive outcome really available for the UK EU free trade agreement, uh, UK EU trade relationship, which is alert, <laughs> spoiler, <free>, <laughs> spoiler alert, uh, yes, which is, which is a free trade agreement. And of course, People who work on trade like me, we we talk about free trade agreements all the time. We forget that no one else really understands what that means or understands the limitations that come with it. So what I'm talking about is a trade agreement that removes tariffs and quotas – but does little to remove regulatory barriers to, to trade or to facilitate trade in services or deal with other areas. So it's quite a lot worse than what we have today, but it is, of course, better than not having any agreement in place at all. And if we're being optimistic, I think that that can be negotiated by the end of the year. My concern would be if we tried to implement it on January the 1st, 2021, because the leap from our relationship as it is today the status quo to such a future relationship such a trade agreement would be quite a big one and at least practically speaking for many companies it would feel like leaving the EU without an agreement in place at all so my hope would be that if this is The final destination for the trade relationship that once that looks like it's in place we do have a discussion about how do you phase that in gradually over time that's how i see it by the end of the year being more optimistic for the long run i believe that such a trade agreement would be embedded within a broader partnership that could evolve over time And I would hope for the economic relationship between the EU and the UK to reintegrate into the future so that we would, I I predict in 20 years time or something, can take into account lots of other factors and lots of things that could go wrong. The UK will probably have an economic relationship with the EU that's quite similar to Switzerland's.
2: Okay, And of course, we've heard the government, the UK government, talking the big talk about global Britain after Brexit how is the UK going to manage its relationships with economic superpowers like the US and like China after Brexit? And do you think that the UK is wrong to hope that it would get any privileges from the special relationship with the US?
1: (laughs) Well, there's there's a lot to take on there. I I think if we have an honest assessment of the UK and what it has ahead of it, it has quite a tough task in that not only do we have this ambition to negotiate new free trade agreements with, say, the US, Australia, New Zealand, we also still have to replace many of the arrangements we already have by virtue of our EU membership. The UK has actually done quite a good job here, but there are some obvious gaps, for example, renegotiating the relationship with Turkey is going to be quite tricky because the UK, via its EU membership, is in a customs union with Turkey and unless, post-Brexit, the UK is in a customs union with the EU, which seems unlikely, then it can't also be in one with Turkey. So that relationship is going to have to change quite fundamentally. But we've also got to replace agreements with Canada and Mexico, which hasn't been done yet, and renegotiate our trade agreement with Japan, which is actually, as an aside, the agreement that I think we should focus on and should be the priority uh, for for the uk right now because the japanese actually feel like we've breached their trust through brexit and they're an important investor in the uk and actually they're the sort of country that's going to has a similar standing in the world to the uk and will be important ally in the future when discussing the fragmentation of the multilateral system issues with the US, China and others. But when it comes to this negotiation with the US, whilst I think it is important that the UK does engage with the US from day one, from the moment Brexit happens, because Trump is actually quite petulant and were we not to engage, I think there could be negative consequences for the UK. I think we have to go into it with open eyes and drop some of the naivety that we've seen to be on display from our politicians so far. And I think the priority should be finding something small to do with the US, something that we can give Trump as a, a prize, something for him to say he's got in the run up to his November elections and also something for Johnson to show to his own supporters, Whilst then and then using that space to just take some time and really think about what do we want our trade policy to look like, what's it for, what are these free trade agreements for, what do we want them to do and how do they fit with our more broader understanding of the UK's economic model and what it's designed to achieve. Because as it stands, I do worry a little bit that we're just running around saying, new free trade agreement, new free trade agreement, new free trade agreement, without giving it much more thought than that.
2: All right, Ian. So we're going to now move on to talk about the fate of foreign policy after Brexit. At the end of last year, the British government announced a deep review of the UK's security, defence and foreign policy. Do you expect that Boris Johnson will indeed set about radically reshaping the UK's foreign policy after Brexit?
0: I think there are some people in his government who would probably like to see some of that. But it's not clear to me that even after Brexit, the UK's fundamental interests have changed that much. I mean, there are those who say, well, you know, we should stop worrying about European security and we should start to focus further east on, you know, the South China Sea or what's happening in the Middle East or whatever. But the reality is that security close to home still matters a great deal to the to the UK. And so I suspect that Boris Johnson's radicalism may extend to trying to get the Ministry of Defence to do things in different ways and save money, but it may not extend to, for example, ending the, the UK's difficult relationship with Russia and pursuing a much warmer relationship with President Putin, I mean, as, a, as an example. So I suspect that it may in the end turn out to be less radical than it sounded before Christmas.
2: Right. And you also point out, I think, that the UK has typically aligned itself with the US on foreign policy. But of course, Trump's erratic behavior has made that dynamic much more difficult to maintain. How do you see the transatlantic relationship unfolding after Brexit?
0: Yeah, I think that's going to be a big problem for the UK and for its other European allies we have to remember that even after Brexit, we are still going to be part of NATO, we're still going to have troops committed to the defence of Europe, uh, some of them stationed physically on the continent of Europe. And Trump, even though we managed to get through the, the NATO summit in London in December without any violent explosions from, from him, Trump is not a fan of NATO. And that does make managing the transatlantic relationship quite difficult. He is once again threatening to impose tariffs on European car exports. His officials are threatening all kinds of uh, retaliation if Europeans procure. Chinese 5G technology from Huawei. So, you know, there are a lot of clouds on the horizon in the transatlantic relationship. And that's not to mention the things that he has already done to destabilize the relationship, notably pulling his troops out of northern Syria without any consultation with other allies who were also fighting in the same area and ordering the assassination of the Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani without, again, giving his allies any opportunity to move their forces and other allies out of harm's way in case of Iranian retaliation. So, uh, you know, he's, he's a very erratic partner. And for the Europeans, I think they have to contemplate the possibility that Trump would not always be by their side in a crisis.
2: Another unresolved issue for the UK, of course, is how it will plug into justice and home affairs cooperation with the EU after Brexit. Do you expect that the UK will manage to preserve quite deep cooperation in this arena?
0: I'm a bit more pessimistic than Charles about this. Um, On the face of it, it's in everybody's interest that those relationships remain as good after Brexit as they have been prior to it, in the sense that the only people who benefit if it's harder for British police and their counterparts elsewhere in Europe to exchange data are organised criminals and terrorists and the like. Uh, So there is an obvious common interest there. But the UK has got off to a bad start because it's become clear, first of all, that because of a glitch in Police computers in the UK. We have not been passing on data about citizens of other EU member states who've been convicted of crimes in the UK. So when they've been when they've completed their sentences or whatever, if they go back to their own countries, their law enforcement authorities may not be aware that these people have committed crimes and may still, you know, pose a threat in the new country that they have moved to. Um, and also, it turned out that we had made unauthorized copies of the. EU's main database on people crossing frontiers the Schengen information system no doubt for good reasons in terms of the um, ability to use this at entry points and so on but contrary to the the regulations contrary to the terms under which we were given access to the database and the European Parliament which is always suspicious about third parties stealing European citizens' data is pretty unhappy about this. One liberal MEP has described the UK as behaving like a bunch of cowboys. Uh, So I think that, that just gets us off to a bad start, really, in these negotiations. And we're going to have to prove that If we have access to EU data about law enforcement, that we can be trusted to look after it, not to pass it on to third parties, especially not to the United States, and to use it only for the purposes for which access has been given.
2: Sounds like in in all domains, in trade, and justice and home affairs, but also in foreign policy and security, it's going to be a real trust-building exercise, both with our European partners, but also with third countries as well. So thank you all for your insights. And listeners can find the Brexit Bulletin online on the CER website. And as Charles says, the CER is absolutely here to stay. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you
0: have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.